Alp of Mainz. Father in Christ and most illustrious Prince, forgive me that I should dare to write to you. I make bold because it is my duty to serve you and to warn you of the crooked practices of those who claim to represent your grace. the preaching of indulgences, but of the gospel. Forward this to Rome. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than he who buys indulgences. If the Pope can empty purgatory, why would he not do so out of love rather than for money? My God, who is this Martin Luther? Fritz? What? Dr. Luther wanted everyone to see that. And everyone will. Good people of Magdeburg, take hold of the raft while you still can. So much grace for so little coin. One-fifth of the usual take. How will you explain this to Rome? This drunken little German monk is intoxicated with himself. Sober him. Hey, Hovames. Uh, I was just about to bend down and tie my shoe because it's a little loose. Do you mind if I do that? This is going to be a really awkward sermon if my shoe comes untied. You guys are great. Hey, welcome to Hope. My name is Danny Householder, and I'm really good at stalling. Um, and I knew that was a longer opening clip than usual today, and so I was like, oh, maybe I have another minute. Uh, no, I had another second, and I knew it because I was like, oh, there, here comes the sobering line, and, and that's it. Hey, look at that! Sent the bunny ears around, looped them through, and I'm good to go. All right, praise God! Praise God in this place today! <laughs> Woo! All right. Hey, it is so good to be with you. My name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here at Hope Ames. Uh, you've already heard it before today, and I'm going to say it again. We believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you. So we're so glad that we get to worship with you today. This is an, expe an especially exciting time for our church family. I'm going to get a little bit more to that uh, toward the end of this sermon. Um, but also, it's an exciting day because we get to worship together as a whole church family. Uh, the fifth Sunday of the month, we're doing family weekends. So kids, if you're a kid in this room, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Adults, let's go ahead and give God praise for the kids. They're so awesome. I'm going to be as fun as I can for you guys today so I can keep you engaged. I also wanted to give a nice welcome to our high school students who are at the high school retreat this weekend. Yeah. From the uh, pictures and videos that I saw, it looks like they had a ton of fun and got very little sleep. So if you need to take a nap, it's okay. I won't be offended. And nobody else is going to see you because <laughs> uh, let's be honest, I see you falling asleep every week, Aiden. Come on. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's the one I saw first. So. He's such a good guy. I tell you what, these kids are incredible. They're not even, these young, uh, soon-to-be grown-ups are incredible. And, uh, and I seriously, I wish that everybody could see what happens in the link on Wednesday nights when these uh, students fill the room um, and they show up. Uh, our Power Life students at 6.30 and then our Ignition students after that. It is infectious, the energy and the electricity that shows up in the room. Uh, so would you just give God praise for all that's going on? They're awesome. Uh, huge thanks to Carrie for all the work that she's doing, and to Pete, who you saw earlier, for the work that he's doing with the uh, kids and students in our, in our church family as well. 
Well, you saw that opening clip, and I know that you were all eager to get to church today because, uh, you know, you opened up your calendars, you're like, oh my goodness, Re Reformation Sunday! Did you open your presents? It's so great. I think that it's fun. Every single year, people get really festive about it. They put on costumes. They go door to door. They knock on doors just like Martin Luther. Right? That's why, right? No? Okay. Uh, well, 504 years ago today, 504 years ago, the morning of October 31st, there was a guy named Martin Luther. Everybody say, hi, Marty. Hi, Marty. And Marty showed up to a church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, today it's known as All Saints Church, and he nailed 95 theses on the door. And uh, these 95 theses were quite controversial. He had felt like the Catholic Church, he was a Catholic monk, had gone off the rails. They were starting to teach things that weren't true. They were starting to tell people that their faith in Christ was not enough. Instead, they had to pay for penance to release them, to free them from their sin. And if they could pay enough money... God would give them eternal grace. Isn't that a great deal? They would say, and as you kind of got a taste of that in the opening clip. Now, rather than me just tell you this story on my own, I thought that this was absolutely crazy. So you're going to see why I have these commentaries out here in just a little bit. I'll use it for an illustration later. Um, but I was uh, grabbing some commentaries this morning. The commentary that I have in my office uh, belonged to my grandpa Householder um, back when he was a pastor. Um, and these books are dated from uh, the 70s, which is just really cool. And as I grabbed the first one, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, Reformation Sunday, some big texts that, found, that come from the book of Romans. So I grabbed the book of Romans commentary, um, and I opened it up, and I have never seen this before in my life. I've opened this book before, but I've never seen this page in here before in my life. Uh, just kind of falling out of the front cover was my grandpa's devotional from October 31st, 1979. Isn't that crazy? It's just, I, I was like, okay, God, I think I'll read this today. <laughs> on this day in 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. Luther's reforming impulse began when he saw the need for the church to return to the gospel, to the true story about Jesus. Luther wrestled with these questions. How does a person find favor with God? That's a question a lot of us wrestle with today, I think. How do we make ourselves approvable? How do we make ourselves likable before God? How can a person be sure that they're saved, that they're going to heaven? Luther found his answer in the Romans text. And you'll see this verse on the screen behind me. Humankind is justified by God's gift of righteousness. It's from free grace. It cannot be earned by good works that can only be accepted in trust and faith. God justifies people. This means he makes them righteous before him, not through their faithfulness to duty or moral goodness, but because of his omnipotent, in other words, his all-encompassing, his everywhere love. This love was given to the world in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's people are justified, reformed, to live this saving news in the world. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it sums it up. So we are made right with God through the faith and not by obeying the law. Turn to the person next to you and say, well, I feel better. You feel better because that means that the pressure's off you. It's not about what you do, but what Christ has done for you. 
Martin Luther wrote 95 theses and he, knocked and, and he knocked on the door, but really his knocking was nailing the 95 theses on the church door because he wanted everyone to know, it's not about you. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's not about you. Instead, you could sum up everything that Luther believed that the scriptures told us about God in this small little phrase. Solo Christo. Say something to your neighbor again. Say, solo Christo. Solo Christo. Now tell him what it means. Just kidding. All right. Uh, it's Latin, and I looked it up in a book this morning to remind myself, solo Christo literally means in Christ alone. And that could be summed up just simply by saying it is in Christ alone that you are saved. It is in Christ alone that you have grace. It is in Christ alone that you are likable before God. It is in Christ alone that you know that you're saved. And so then Martin Luther came up with the phrase, not came up, but used a modern Latin phrase in his day, to sum up, later on, many years later, what he meant when he said solo Christo. And it was sadis est. Again, turn to the person next to you and say sadis est. And what this literally means is it's enough. And Luther would say Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Will you turn to the person next to you and say Jesus is enough? Now will you turn to the person next to you and say when will he make us, or when will he stop us make talk? What? He can't talk. Why would we talk? All right. Jesus is enough, Luther would say. Jesus is enough. What do you think of when you hear the word enough? What would be enough for you? What would make you feel like your life has enough? What would make you feel like your relationships have enough? What would make you feel like your career is enough? What would make you feel like your social life is enough? What would make you feel like you had enough? So let's say you're measuring out the enough in your life. Tyra students, I gave you this example at the very beginning of the year, um, so you'll recognize it, um, but I want to share it with the rest of the church today. So here I've got a mason jar, and it's got some measuring markers on there. And how do you measure what is enough in your life, right? Like, what if you got it filled a little bit? Everybody would say, okay, well, that's not enough. Clearly, that, that's not enough. And so you fill a little bit more, and you're like, okay, well, it's getting to be a little bit more enough. Fill a little bit more. Maybe it's getting to be a little bit more enough. But it, for whatever reason, it never really feels like it's all the way. Enough. Even if I filled this all the way, we would say, well, I need another jar. I need another cup. And oftentimes, I feel like in our lives, when we're figuring out, do I have enough or not, we're not actually measuring what fills us. We're not concerned about what's filling us, but instead, we're concerned about what we have. Yikes! And so rather than measuring what fills us, instead we think, okay, well, what do I have? Like, it's really hard to determine, am I filled? Do I have enough? And so maybe we start to add things to the top of our life. We're not concerned about what's filling us. Instead, we're concerned about what we have. So what do you have? Have you added something to your life lately? Okay, well, I have the job that I want, or I have a job that I want to get. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe that's not it yet. Okay, well, I've got more friends now. Okay, but I, I still don't feel like it's enough. All right, well, I mean, I don't know. My family's starting to look like I always wish that it would have. It's still, I don't know. What is it that you're adding on top of your life? I think that so often in our lives, instead of, figuring, instead of to figure out if we have enough, we don't pay attention to what fills us. Instead, we just pay attention to what we have or what we can do or what we've accomplished. And we start to measure, well, how high does that stack up? And after that, we say, well, then I could determine, do I have enough or do I not? The interesting thing about this is, is no matter how many things you're adding on top of your cup, 
the cup is still empty. Why, why am I not feeling fulfilled? Why do I not feel like I have enough? I have all this stuff, but I don't feel like I have enough. I think it's because when we set up our life like this, we can't be filled. There's too many things in the way. There are too many distractions. And so we are distracted from the thing that can actually fill us. And so we get to that point in our life. I'm like, why am I not filled? Why can't I fill up? Well, there's no entryway into our hearts. We've blocked it off. I believe that Jesus is telling us all these things that you're adding to your life, they're fine, they're good stuff, but they're not the stuff. And the more and more that we add, the interesting thing about it is the heavier it gets. And it doesn't fill us, but instead it crushes us. And eventually we feel like we're crumbling beneath it. We're not filling, we're just adding. What is it that is enough for you? There's this story in the Bible that you heard about today. It's in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus was determining what is enough for someone to follow me. And he's shocking. He's surprising about it. He calls the most incapable, unqualified, not enough people to follow him. Jesus walks up to a tax collector named Matthew. And he says, follow me. It's important that we know that in those days, people hated tax collectors, especially the people that Jesus was apparently supposed to save. Jesus, being the Messiah, came for the Jewish people. The Jewish people believed the, the Messiah has come to save us, to release us, to free us. Who did he free them from? The Messiah was supposed to come to free them from Roman oppression, to give them status again. That's how they saw it in their minds. Well, tax collectors were oftentimes Jewish people who were working for the Roman establishment. And so Jewish people saw them as traitors. You've abandoned us. You're taking from us. You've joined the evil side. And Jesus is saying to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. I want to give you a picture of what uh, this looked like, how people would have responded. And I don't think I can tell you that uh, super well with my own words. So instead, I invite you to take a look at this clip to get a picture of what it would have been like, how audacious it was for Jesus to call someone like Matthew. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys? Let me go. 
Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? Grab it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Man, there's some good stuff in that clip. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 says, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Can you say that? Disreputable sinner. Say disreputable sinner. Disreputable sinner. What does it mean to be a disreputable sinner? I think that uh, if I see myself as a disreputable sinner, what I would say is maybe I just don't have enough. Maybe I'm not enough. Matthew, as a tax collector, socially and financially, he had enough, but he still felt like he was missing something. The people who followed Jesus, as you saw in that clip, they would have said, he doesn't have enough. He's not one of us. The religious people surrounding Jesus of those days, the Pharisees, the people who were very high up in the church, and they followed all the laws, and they knew God so well because of, how, because of all the things that they did, they would have said, a guy like Matthew, no way, he doesn't have enough. And Jesus says to people like that, I want to show up with you. I want to have dinner with you. I want to eat with you. I want to share life with you. And it was absolutely offensive. It was offensive to the religious people who said, how dare someone like that show up? Who is it in your life that you'd be very offended by their presence? Thanksgiving is coming up not too far from now in a month. And if someone walked into your door and it was the last person on earth that you wanted to see at your Thanksgiving table, who would that be? I think for some of us right now, when we see this image, we think of someone we really wouldn't want to see at our front door. What do you think of the referee in that picture today, huh? Actually, I don't think it was him who made the call. I think it was one of the other guys. I'm not totally sure, but that was the best picture that I could find. If you don't know what happened yesterday, the Cyclones got ripped off, um, and uh, I'm, I, was, I was not okay yesterday. And I know that some of you weren't okay because we talked about it. We were not okay. And I know that a lot of us, uh, I don't know, feel better about it when we express our anger. Now, I'm not telling you as somebody today who's like, hey, I wasn't mad at all. Um, yesterday, I was reciting Psalm 54 over that referee, like, destroy my enemies, God. <laughs> like, you think you say bad things during football games. I, I'm, I'm asking God to throw down curses on my enemies. You can take that off the screen. We can go to the next one. Like, how, how did you feel in that moment, you know? And Jesus says, yes, even those people. When you think about who should you invite to church, who should you invite to be a part of God's family, think of the person that nobody else would expect you to invite. 
Think of the person that you think wouldn't belong. Think of the person that religious people would look at and say, why do you spend time with such scum? That's what the Pharisees asked Jesus' followers. Why does your teacher spend time, why does he eat with such scum? It's a very disrespectful term that they're calling the people that Jesus spent his time with scum. Now, you might be on the accusational side of that, calling other people scum, but I also believe that there are people in this room who are probably on the receiving end of that. And you believe that you're scum. You've heard other people say it about you. And I think that there's something very powerful in the text that we could read over very quickly. But it's just so simple. It's in Matthew chapter 9, it's in verse 12, and it just says, Jesus heard. In the Greek text of the uh, New Testament, it just says, Jesus heard. In English translations today, it's written in a way that's a little bit more readable, but just simply, Jesus heard. Jesus hears what they say about you. Jesus hears what people make you feel like. Jesus hears the lies that people spread about you. He hears all of it. And I want to encourage you today to know this. Jesus does not join the, the accusers. Jesus stands by you. And that is so refreshing because we live in a world where we feel like we can't trust anybody. We've been taught that over and again. But Jesus is the God who shows up in this world and he says, I'm not so concerned about if you can impress me, if you're in the cool club, if you can join the group of people who have become so high and mighty and righteous that they can accuse others. Jesus says, I will stand by you. You have a God who will stand by you. He hears what they say about you. And he responds to the accusers. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come, to, I've come for not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is asking us to give ourselves a heart check. Let's go ahead. Let's check our cups. Are we filled or are we not? And if we come before God, we have to say, compared to you, I don't belong here. I'm not enough to stand before you, God. And yet God still shows up. He stands next to us. And it's not that we've done enough, but Jesus stands next to us as if we are enough. He says, my grace is what you need. I'm enough. That's the point. I am enough. So again, let's go ahead and let's get back to our measuring cup. Would you free yourself from the things that you're trying to stack up and impress others with, impress yourself with, whatever it might be, and some days just acknowledge, you know what, I'm an empty cup. And I don't like that about myself right now. I don't like that my life doesn't look the way that I want it to look. I don't like that I haven't accomplished the things that I thought that I might at this point in my life. I don't like it. I don't like that I feel empty. But when we're empty and we take off those covers and we remove the things that we're stacking on top of ourselves just to try to impress somebody that, quite frankly, might not care as much about us as we think that they do, well, yeah, it's vulnerable. Yeah, it's honest. Sometimes it hurts, but Jesus says... That's when I pour into your life. That's when you receive me. Not because of anything you do, but because you've opened yourself to me and because my grace is free for all people. Let's stop measuring our lives and deciding if we have enough based on what's on top of our life, what we've added, but instead let's truly take an internal heart check. Have I opened my heart to let Jesus pour into me? This is how we feel like we're enough. This is how God reminds us that we're enough. Martin Luther, this was the thing that he would tell people over and over again. It is not about what you do to get saved. And instead, it's because God has saved you that it will change everything about your life and what you do. This is so critically important. 
In that devotional, it was people are asking the questions, how do I earn salvation? How do I get saved? This is so important for us to know and to remember. There is a God, and this God loves you. This God loves you so much that it is not about what you do to get saved, but it is instead because you are saved, it will change what you do. It's not I'm praying to God just to get him to notice me. I'm not praying to God to get him to like me more. Instead, I'm praying to God because I know that this God loves me and cares for me. And it's the natural response for me to speak with him. Martin Luther would tell people that over and over again. And they were so frustrated. Four years after he nailed those 95 theses to the door, they called him in for trial and they said, Martin, you have to take back what you said. The word that they used was recant. Recant what you have said. And at the Diet of Worms, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying he was on trial, he said before them, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes or the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then years later, when they recorded this in a speech, Martin Luther said that you can go ahead and sum it up by saying, here I stand. I can't do anything else. I stand here. Well, Jesus stands with you. Jesus, in his word, tells you, I will stand next to you. And when we don't feel like we're enough, Jesus says, I'm enough for you. And I will always stand with you. Listen, Jesus shocked other people by who he hung out with, but do you know who I think was really shocked? I think the people who were most shocked is the people who Jesus spent his time with. I mean, seriously, when was the last time when somebody shocked you, spending time with you? When was the last time you were shocked that you were welcomed into a certain space you thought, I have no business being here! I don't belong! And Jesus says, yes, you do. I'll stand with you. I'll stand with you. As a church, I want to be Jesus followers. I want this to be a Jesus church. And I believe that we are a Jesus church. I believe that this room is filled with Jesus followers. But as Jesus followers, we continue to do maintenance work. And we continue to talk about this to make sure that we stay on the right track, that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And when our eyes are focused on Jesus, our hearts are open to others. So the question for us today is, who are we going to stand with? Who will we welcome to our table? Who will we welcome with open arms and say, you're welcome here despite what the world says about you. We've heard what they say about you and we will stand next to you. We'll make space for you. A lot of you know what's coming up for our church family. We're purchasing land. You voted on this, which is really exciting. And starting next week, we're going to open up a giving campaign and it is called Field of Hope. I've been meeting with the team over the last several months and they've been working so hard to get this ready for you. I cannot encourage you enough. Please attend, be here, be loud, be excited over the next several weeks because it is going to be so exciting. Now, let me tell you this. This building, and maybe this is exactly what it'll look like someday, maybe it won't, but this land nonetheless is a place where I believe dreams are going to come true. This is going to be a place where every single person is welcome. It's going to be a glimpse of heaven. Revelation chapter 7 says that, uh, that, that, the, uh, that John looked out over the crowd that God showed you him in heaven and said it was a crowd that was too great to count. It was people that were from every tribe, every nation, speaking every language. And so when we think about the setup and the DNA of our church, that's what we want to be. And so when we think about what we are purchasing, when we think about what we are building, we are not thinking about something that's for ourselves. We can look at this and say, you know what? God's really blessed us and this is incredible. So now we're going to use what God has given us to buy ourselves a gift. But let me be very clear. 
As we embark on this giving campaign over the next month, we are not trying to buy a gift for ourselves. We are purchasing a gift for this community. We are purchasing a home that this community can call theirs. We are opening our doors. We are taking root. And we are saying every single person is enough for us because Jesus stands by him. And so we're going to stand by them. I want us to remember that. It's crucial for us. This thing, this project is not about us. It's about God and what God's called us to. And God's given us a gift and we're called to share it with the world. Keep that in mind over the next month. Share it. Who are we going to stand with? Who are we going to welcome in? Many, many years before Jesus uh, walked the earth, there was a prophet and his name was Hosea. And it kind of gave us a picture of who God stands with and who God calls us to stand with. Uh, it's one of the most shocking stories in the entire Bible. It's one of the most beautiful stories in all of literature. Uh, there are uh, literary critics who will say that Hosea chapters 1 through 3, uh, they're the most beautiful chapters in all of literature because they're so shocking, they're so jarring. And they show us what does it mean to be enough for God. In Hosea chapter 1, there was a prophet named Hosea. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said, go and get married. Now prophets, a lot of times we think of prophets, we wonder, okay, are they just fortune tellers? Uh, do they just predict the future? Sometimes they told things that were coming in the future, but for the most part, by definition, a prophet was sim simply someone who heard the word of God and shared the word of God. Some of them spoke it, right? Like they would receive God's word and then they would speak God's word. And then there were other prophets who would be given a word and then they were called to live that word. Now, there was no prophet who probably received more a stranger, crazier, more embarrassing, more exceptional word than Hosea was called to live. As that sentence concludes, when it says, go and marry, it says, go and marry someone who is selling her body. Go and marry someone who hasn't been faithful throughout her life. Go and marry someone who's been sinful. Go and marry someone that the rest of the world looks at and thinks that she's gross, that she's not enough. Why? I wonder if Hosea is like, hold on, back up, God. I liked when your plan for me was to go out and get married and to have a family. But then God says, no, I want you to go stand with someone that makes you uncomfortable. Hosea was obedient to the Lord. He goes and he marries this woman. God has a reason for this. He says, uh, I, want you to, uh, to, I want you to love this woman, to marry this woman, to be with this woman. Because if you marry her, you will see that the Lord still loves his people. God tells Hosea, I want you to marry this woman because until you marry someone, until you are invested in someone who's going to hurt you, until you are in love with someone and serve someone who's going to betray you, you will not know what it's like for me to love my people. You're not going to understand me until you understand what it feels like to be hurt by someone you love the most. Hosea marries this woman. Her name is Gomer. And their life seems like it's off to a good start. I mean, the prophet shows up in her life, right? And everything's perfect. They have some children. And I wonder if things were going just fine. And, go, and Hosea thought, I've done it again, God. I've, I've followed your word. And, and I've, I've worked according to your plan. And everything's great. And then they have a child. And it just kind of goes over it quickly in the text where it tells us that this child's name was Lo-Ami, which quite literally means not mine. In other words, Gomer... Hosea's wife had a child with somebody else. 
Hosea is a faithful man of the Lord. He stays with her. And I wonder if that was difficult. I've been betrayed. I've been publicly humiliated. Everybody knows about this. But he stands with her. I think, okay, well, this is going to be a redemption story. Reconciliation. They're going to make it, right? One day, Hosea wakes up and Gomer's gone. She's not uh, in the house. She's not around the community. She's gone. And you might think that Hosea has every right to just walk away with her. And from biblical grounds, I mean, yeah, there's like, there, we talked about this last week, there are biblical grounds for divorce, for ending a relationship. And biblically speaking, if there was an affair that took place, if adultery happened, yeah, Hosea could have walked away. But God says this to Hosea instead, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another love. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel. Hosea, you're starting to understand my love. You're starting to understand my heart and my compassion for people because you're starting to understand what it's like to be betrayed and to hurt and to still love that person and to still stand with that person. So God says to Hosea, go and find her. Where did Hosea have to go to find her? I mean, think about all the places that he had to go. I mean, he must have gone across this community. Hey, have you seen Gomer? Have you seen my wife? I wonder if he goes to the bad side of town. Hey, have you seen Gomer? Have you seen my wife? Have you seen her anywhere? People are like, wait a second, aren't you the prophet? Aren't you the man of God? Aren't you the one whose life is supposed to be perfect? Aren't you supposed to have it together? Aren't you supposed to be enough for your wife? Why would she leave you? So Hosea is embarrassed. He must have been humiliated. Publicly. In Hosea's day, um, uh, the, the surrounding Israel, what we know about it from the context is they had really kind of succumbed to the, the, I don't know, the moral compass of the surrounding pagan nations. They started to see people as objects, people that you could sell, people that you could purchase. And that's where Gomer ended up. By the time that Hosea finds Gomer, she's standing on a selling block and people are trying to buy her. Now, the prices that are thrown out that we find in the text, it shows that people weren't really trying to buy her for a very high price. They thought, you know what? She's past her prime. She doesn't belong here anymore. She's not worth that much. She's not enough for me, is what people were saying to her based on the prices that they were bidding for her, for her body. And I wonder what that must have felt like. I mean, not for Hosea, who walks in and sees her. I mean, how did it feel like for Gomer? I mean, she couldn't have imagined that it would get this bad, but what would you do? I mean, your life was in ruins, and here comes this perfect man who's supposed to save your life, and you never feel like you're enough for him. You know, he comes home every single day. You wouldn't believe the sermon I preached. You wouldn't believe the people I converted. What did you do, Gomer? Well, I thought about my past got these horrible memories of mistakes, of abuse. I can't shake it. So what do you expect her to do? She ran. And then more people abuse her, more people hurt her. They believe they can sell her. And as she's standing on the selling block, there's no doubt they would have stripped her of her clothes. The only privacy she could have had in that moment would have been just to close her eyes. Just the only thing she could cover at that point would have been her eyes. 
So I wonder what it's like for her. She's hearing all these different voices, the sound just bouncing off of her eardrums. I'll buy her for blank. I'll buy her for this. I'll buy her for that. And then suddenly she hears a familiar voice. It's the voice of her husband. I wonder how she felt in that moment. Like, oh, what is he doing here? Hosea wins the bidding. He says, so I bought her back. And no doubt, according to the context of that day, Hosea would have made his way through the crowd, stepped up to the selling block, covered her in his cloak, and brought her home. But Hosea did not bring her home as something that he owned or as an object. Instead, it says that he spoke to her kindly and sweetly. And it can be paraphrased as, from this day forward, you are mine, but I am yours. God said to Hosea, by loving Gomer, you're going to know how it feels like for me to love my people. There are going to be days when they run from you, and I want you to pursue them. And I stand on the other side, and I say, you know what? I'm actually not as much like Hosea as I am like Gomer. And I realize, God, there are days when I'm just running from you, and you still pursue me. You still come after me. Listen, this is so much more than a metaphor. I mean, God told prophets, I want you to live this out so that people understand what it's like to be me, what I have to communicate with my people. I want you to share my word with the world. And you look at that story and you're like, okay, I mean, that's nice, that's beautiful, but like, hold on a second. God, when did, like, when did you ever suffer? When were you ever publicly embarrassed? When did you ever deal with this? When were you ever betrayed? When were you ever on the selling block of the world? Well, many, many years later, there was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it says that he was stripped down. They put a scarlet robe on him to mock him, and they threw insults at him. They spit on him. And essentially on the cross, he's on the trading block. He's on the selling block of his society. What's his, worth life, what's his life worth to you now? It seemed like nothing. And yet on that cross, it's not us that are putting out our bids for him. Well, what's he worth to me? It's instead him saying, this is my bid for you. I love you. You run from me, but I pursue you. You do all sorts of things, and sometimes people say things about you because of those things, but I still stand next to you. On the cross, Jesus is demonstrating his bid for you for me. Is your life enough for him? Jesus says, your life was enough to give my life. Listen, we may not do anything in this world that makes us enough for God, but God still acts as if we are enough. He stands by us. I bring up this scripture, I bring up this passage, because in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says something. He says, now go and learn to the people who are criticizing the ones that Jesus is hanging out with. And Jesus heard all their accusations. He heard all the gossip. He heard what they were saying about his new friends. And he says to those people, I'm not going to join your mocking insults. Instead, I will confront you with the word of God. Go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to show mercy. I want you to give a free gift. I don't care what these people deserve. I don't care what they've done. It's not what they do that makes them enough. It's what I'm doing for them that fills their lives. I 
I'm the one who shows up for them. It's not them showing up for me. Let's be very clear about this. When we do work for God in the world, right? See, I'm doing God's work, right? God's called me to something. I'm doing God's work. Hey, God's called us to purchase some land. We're doing God's work. We're not doing something that fills God. God's doing something through us. And as he does something through us, he does it through us because he fills our cups and he overflows it until we spill into the world around us. We are not filling God. We are not making God enough. God's come into this world. God's inspired us. God's moved us. God's loved us. God's purchased us. God saved us. And God fills us. And God makes us enough. Jesus said that he was quoting Hosea. Go back one slide. When Jesus said that, he's quoting Hosea chapter 6. I want you to go and read that story again. I want you to know what it's like for me to love people. It's not easy, but I'll never stop doing it. Know that. God will never stop loving you. God will never stop pouring into you. God will not, never stop sharing his grace with you. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes when he's in prayer with the Lord, when he, uh, he, he's, he's talking about a thorn in his side, now he's not feeling like he's enough, and he hears Jesus say back to him, my grace is enough. God's grace is enough. When you hear the word enough and you're tempted to think, am I enough? Remember this, God's grace is enough for you. His grace is enough for you, and it'll change the way that you live. I want this to be a Jesus church. I want us to be Jesus followers. And Jesus followers are people who are living with enough. We're not afraid of scarcity, but instead we live in abundance. So as we wrap this up today, what does it look like to live with enough? The first is we are secure. We're going to work backwards just really quickly here. First is we are secure. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, you just saw it on the screen. It is my grace is enough. I am secure. Jesus' grace is enough for me. We are unoffendable. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had all sorts of reasons to be offended by the people around him. And the people who were religious, who watched it happening, they were very offended. But Jesus said, I'm not offended by their presence. I'm not grossed out. They haven't pushed me away so far. I love them. I can't help myself. I want to be around them. And then finally, we're invitational. Because we're Matthew. We're Gomer. We're the ones who received that love. We're the ones that Jesus calls from the tax collector's booth and says, I want you. And maybe we get fussy about the other people that Jesus calls. And as you heard in those words earlier, portrayed uh, or spoken by the actor who portrayed Jesus, yeah, you thought it was pretty crazy when I called you too. Jesus invited me, so I'm inviting you. Jesus invited you, so who are you going to invite? We got a mission for us over the next month. God's already filled us. We're not creating something to fill ourselves more, to feel like a better church. We are filled, we are overflowing, and so we have a gift to share with this world. We're inviting everybody to be a part of it. God's grace is enough. Jesus is enough. He's the one who fills you. You don't need to add things on top of your life. Let those things go and see how his grace fills your heart. Happy Reformation Day. Don't get too caught up in the tradition. Don't get too caught up in the songs and the words but get caught up in who the songs and the words are pointing us to. Jesus, the one who is enough, the one who stands next to us. Let's stand and sing for him. Amen.